0: and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your Video Game Podcast here with you for the first time in the year 2022. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I'm Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this fine audio program. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sh- sharing. Thank you for giving us as a gift over the holiday season. If you did, I'm, I'm not sure how you did. <laughs> it's not like we have merch, but thank you. Maybe we'll do merch this year. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Uh, but thank you for joining us as we are here for part one of our two part look back at the year that was 2021, uh, our year in review for the previous 12 months, as we will use this episode to focus on the bigger stories, the bigger topics that uh, we saw come about in the year 2021. And, uh, uh, there was a lot to talk about, wasn't there?
1: Yes, and uh before we get into that this week, I am Dennis, the man who is being extremely cautiously optimistic about what the new year may bring
0: that's a that's a nickname that rings and screams. My fingers are crossed
1: yeah they're they're crossed. I'm knocking on wood, I'm doing all of the different stupid superstitions that i, I know don't make any sort of difference, but you know, I always do anyways, just mm-hmm. in case I'm mm-hmm. hedging my, hedging my bets um which incidentally. Kind of relates to a lot of the the stories that, you know, we're uh we're gonna talk about this uh this show. But yeah. It's been a weird year and hopefully the next upcoming year is not as weird, but you know We'll see.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Fingers uh, certainly are crossed. Toes crossed as well, if you are able. Uh If you are one of us, an older uh, gentleman, and uh, uh are afraid of uh, not being able to uncross your toes if you
1: cross them, totally understand. I mean, we're not that old.
0: We're men of a certain yet. age.
1: Like, late 30s, not that, not that old, come on.
0: Yeah, but we still get the random aches and pains and... and creaks when we sit up we stand up from a
1: chair. Yeah. I mean every time I roll over in bed I sound like, you know, snap, crackle, pop, whatever. <laughs> but that's fine. Exactly. That's, that's, a me that's my problem. Point. That's that's not an age problem. That's a me problem.
0: No, it's a you aging problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a okay, combination fine. of the two. Okay, fair enough. We're all there. It happens to all of us though yeah. at this point. So uh but yes, yeah, so this is the part one for the look back at the year of twenty twenty one and kind of a spoiler alert we're not really going to be talking a lot about video games on this program,
1: no, I actually basically not at all yeah i mean we 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 tangentially touch on video games right towards the end, so spoiler alert if if hearing us rant about money and you know the state of the economy is not of interest to you, you could probably skip this episode I mean. Cause that's what's gonna be happening, really.
0: Yeah, this was uh, kind of a distillation of the big topics that we seem to spend the most time talking about here on this program over the course of 2021, which if you were listening at all through the course of 2021, a lot of what we talked about was not directly video game related. We weren't talking about the latest new release, uh, a surprise new announcement, or anything of that nature. A lot of the oxygen on this program, we gave to stupid things that were happening that involved a lot of money.
1: Yeah, quite a lot of money.
0: Yes, and, and we have various topics we'll get to. But the general theme we can tie in the first couple topics with, I would say, is uh, the, the theme that uh, in 2021, money really became nothing more than a tool
1: for memes. Yeah. Memes and lols. Yeah, so... I think the first and perhaps biggest story is how like I'm I'm not throwing shade at, you know, Wall Street bets the community or anything like that in general because you know it really is just the little man trying to fight back against, you know, hedge funds and stuff and try to make some money for themselves and that that's fine. I mean, their community has some kind of offensive uh tropes and stuff that they always go back to and but you know it's basically all code For any in like any community that goes long enough, has stupid in jokes that don't necessarily mean what you think they mean, and whatever. I'm not defending them. It's a bit nihilistic, but yeah, it's uh, it's basically seen like this last year. I've seen like you know, I I started following Wall Street bets because you know I was curious about like how things go there and what what all the hubbub's about and. I'd say more than half of it is basically just people joking about how much money they lose. It's <laughs> not even really celebrating wins. Like, the the wins are, you know, fun to see on occasion. Like, it's, it's basically just armchair um, venture capitalists and whatnot just kind of like – you know, memeing with each other over like what, what might cause a company to do well, what might cause a company to do poorly. And essentially just because it's called wall street bets. And frankly, if you look, if you play the stock market at all, a lot of it does often feel like betting. Mm-hmm. Like it really does feel like gambling. Like when you're going into some of these more volatile stocks, like the most volatile stock I think we have to talk about first would definitely be. GameStop, which is, again, tangentially related to video games.
0: Yes, they are a video game-based retailer uh, who, uh, for the last several years prior to 2021, saw their operation, their operating income, their profit margins, saw everything gradually decline over time as more and more game sales shifted to the online digital space uh, direct between a consumer and their home consoles. Yeah, exactly. And the prospects for GameStop as a company had really declined and a lot of business analysts through the, you know, previous several years had written them off as an entity and reflecting that the price of, uh, of shares and stock in GameStop had really declined over the, uh, over the course of a several year span to the point where I think it was maybe a dollar at its lowest point, less than a dollar. Yeah. But for some reason the people of Wall Street Bets in the community, some of them, there are some really educated people on Wall Street Bets. Yeah. In and amongst and, all the nihilist apes.
1: Yeah, like say what you will about the whole community, the ones that do kind of rise up from the community have done their homework and know their shit. And specifically the one guy, I can't I mean, I'll just say his main name his Reddit name was deep effing value. Yeah. Whatever, like keep our no F word <laughs> rating or whatever on this podcast, but uh he is maybe the main catalyst for doing investigation into GameStop because he kind of realized, wait, a hedge fund, like, it really seems like there's some manipulation going on, market manipulation for this stock in particular. And a lot of like negative press is coming out maybe because of hedge funds because he did a lot of uh investigation, realized that they're they're not cash poor. They're not, like they're doing well, like they have like a lot of cash flow as a company and like they're not, like for, for as poorly as the stock looks like it's doing. It doesn't necessarily seem like it should be doing that poorly,
0: right? Yeah, once you dug deeper into some of the financials, uh the, the quarterly reports, uh th- there was a different story than what was being publicly projected by analysts, he- hedge funds or the wider business media about the fortunes of GameStop. Yeah, that it was basically on its deathbed was what, you know, something that was widely reported. So, uh a lot of people uh the I guess the early apes, if you will, on Wall Street bets to get into GameStop got in at just dollars, just a few dollars per share. And through the la- later stages of 2020, that share price, you know, increased a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. So when 2021 started, the first day of trading, uh, one share of GameStop was trading at $19 US.
1: Yeah. And I mean, without getting into the roller coaster initially, we'll just say, one share, one share of GameStop closed twenty twenty one at one forty eight thirty nine, so almost a seven hundred percent increase. Yeah, a huge increase, like giant increase. So, what happened? Well, <laughs> I will also just say at its at its absolute height, because you know, January was a bit of a whirlwind for that stock in particular. Like oh, after, yeah. like after. Like what happened was kind of the internet collectively kind of banded together and by the internet I mean the Internet of Wall Street Bets, which is an open Reddit forum anyone can join just to kind of like check out what's going on there. Yeah, and
0: still to this day, even after all the hoopla, especially in January, yeah. centered around GameStop Stock, it's still an open forum.
1: Yeah, like there's no you don't need to pay to see post or anything like that. Like it's not a Reddit Gold community or whatever, like there, but uh they basically decided to try to, you know, out hedge fund the hedge funds. So collectively as a group of like, I don't know how many people, a lot, uh, seemingly a lot. Yeah. Let's just say more than a thousand probably. They all decided to, you know, one day buy stock up at this $19 price, which when there's a huge rush of stock being bought, That triggers the market to say, hey, maybe it should be worth more than $19. And drives up the price. Yeah, it drives up the price. So like, at its absolute height of all of this, you know, madness that was happening towards the end of January, specifically on January 28th, the all-time high of this stock was 483 US dollars. And, you know, there were a bunch of the people as they call them on wall street bets the apes that you know were going diamond hands which you know <laughs> means they're all in and they're holding at that price and like just keeping buying more which is like okay traditional investment advice is like no if it's you buy low and sell high enough people you know decided no this is too crazy like i'm like this is too big of a win i got to get out while the getting's good <laughs> so you know it didn't stay there uh no, and and the stock price was a roller coaster ride. It
0: did come yeah. down from those heights, but what we also saw with the, uh, GameStop stock in January,
1: at, on a couple of different occasions, uh, trading was ceased. Yeah, because it seemed like it was like, there was something fishy going on to the point where, Deep effing Value himself was basically summoned in front of Congress to have to, um, testify against what the hell's going on, as if there was some sort of like conspiracy happening or, like, insider trading or collusion or whatever. None of that was insider trading collusion, just good research done by one guy and then basically not even, like, a big firm or anything. He just kind of, like, made an impassioned plea on this goofy internet forum and then a lot of people saw it and went, oh, you're right. And that uh, uh, got a lot of
0: people behind it. And so the stock price got bit up in no small part because of the collective will Of the Wall Street Bets community, but not only was it deep effing value in that uh, Congress, uh, congressional hearing or SEC hearing on what the hell went on with uh, GameStop stock uh, and why did it go so bananas, part of the motivation uh, for these Wall Street apes, these people on the Wall Street Bets community, was to crush a couple of specific hedge funds who had bought Options puts some, some sort of kind of nebulous, uh, trading device it, it, where essentially the hedge funds were betting against though the price of GameStop going up. And yeah. the actual mechanisms as best I can, uh, uh TLDR for, for all of us here is imagine you rent a car for the weekend. You drive it off uh, the lot from Enterprise or whatever. You turn around, sell that car for yep. 10 grand. But you still need to return the car or return a car like that for Monday to Enterprise. Otherwise, you're on the hook for a lot of penalties. So you go out and buy a very similar car and pay 2500 for it, return that car to Enterprise. No harm, no foul. They get something like their car back, and you profit with $7,500. Yep. Now imagine that with
1: stocks. Yeah, that, that's exactly sort of like how the hedge funds work. They buy up a whole bunch of stock, um, sell it right away at a bigger price than what they paid. Really hope for the price to go way down, and then buy it back at that fraction of what they paid. And then they've made all that money yeah, in they between. They keep the difference. They keep the difference. So like, it, it's super complicated when you're reading about how the mechanics of how it worked. But that's that's how it works. It's it's. Not a cool practice? It seems sketchy as hell. Yeah. For whatever the the
0: massive community of Wall Street bets may have been doing, they weren't engaging in those types of practices that by all accounts is totally legal on the part of hedge funds and well-connected individuals.
1: Yeah, like the the big the bigger I mean, yeah, a bunch of like, you know, random internet people became millionaires overnight oh, yes. because of this, of course, which is, you know, good for them. But the bigger issue here was that now we actually get to see – like, the, the general public now sees – it's not necessarily on the up and up how these hedge funds are operating. Like, they're – like, the, for what seemed to be, like, a sketchy practice, it's something they've been doing for years, and now it's out in the open, and people are looking at this and going, wait, what? Really? This is how you make your money? Huh? So, obviously – you know, that's – people started to fight back and then because the hedge funds still have a, a bunch of money and their hands are in the pockets of a lot of, you know, higher up lawmakers and stuff, they were able to, you know, maybe get some movement against some of these trading apps like Robinhood specifically was one that was, uh, you know, the main one. It certainly was. Robinhood uh, is – I think
0: basically a Canadian uh, or an American version of uh, Well Simple. It's a democratized, uh, no low fee to no fee trading app that uh, anyone can put onto their phone, and the yeah. uh, the common folk of the world, the the Thomases, Richards, and Harolds of the world, yes, uh, can use to day trade. Uh, without paying the fees uh, because Robinhood uh, has their mechanisms in which they cover the costs so a lot of the Wall Street Bets community were doing their trading through the Robinhood app and it is on the app that they would suspend the trading of Wall Street Bets a couple times
1: yeah which obviously also when Robinhood in and of itself as a stock went public uh <laughs> the Wall Street Bets community was putting heavy puts against them as a company, which means that they were basically buying options that said as a company they're going to fail. <laughs> so, like, if and when they fail, they make a bunch of money, which is another side of trading, which also doesn't really make sense. And it's crazy, like, where does all this money come from? And where, who, like, at that point, you literally are betting on things.
0: Oh, yeah. No, it it is literally gambling at that point.
1: Yeah. Like you, at that point, you're not actually buying stocks in a thing. You're buying, you're buying a concept of how you think something's going to go. But like you're like, okay, I'm gonna buy these many puts to say that by this date the stock is gonna drop to this price. And when they when it does, you get x amount of money based on how close you were to that money. It's Mm -hmm. just like what. That's a thing? Who's paying the other side of that? Like, where's all this money literally coming from? Like, I think it kind of did a lot to expose how bananas Wall Street actually is.
0: Uh, certainly, and brought it down to, uh I don't want to say it demystified it, but it felt like uh, the Wall Street Bets community was able to bring in a whole other class, a whole whole other culture of people to Wall Street trading that may not have been privy to it previously. Look,
1: you and I learned about Wall Street Bets through all this hoopla. Yeah. We're not the only ones. No. I mean, let's just say it moved stock trading away from Wall Street. Yes, it did. Like, so that's the thing. It's like Wall Street, Madison Avenue, whatever else. They're not the ones who are controlling everything now. It's actually in the hands of – it can be in the hands of literally, you know, like as you said, Tom, Dick, Harry, whoever. So – That that that's the crazy thing that came from this. And I mean there's still, you know, hoopla and stuff here and there about, you know, various things like how how the community should be allowed to do things and I'm sure the regulation things are up in the air, but cats out of the bag now. Certainly.
0: And uh Wall Street Bets is still very much a community that believes in holding, if not in buying up GameStop stock that is still their golden child, diamond hands. If you sold off, you had paper hands, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so people at this point, depending on when they bought in, say earlier in the year of 2021, they're holding paper losses. Like yeah. actual losses on the books where if they were to sell at this point, they're losing six figures.
1: Yeah, because like there are people that did buy at $483, yeah. which is insane.
0: Which, the crazy thing to think is, uh, it, there's every reason to believe the share price of GameStop would have gone higher had trading not been halted at that point. Yep. It would have, it may have reached a thousand, and I know early on in January, uh, a lot of the comments on Wall Street bets at that time, as you and I started reading it and wondering what the hell's going on with this thing, basically a lot of people were saying they were holding till like a thousand dollars. And then once GameStop shares reached the price of a thousand dollars, it was almost like a magic figure because then based on some of these other options, the hedge funds were buying those hedge funds would be totally SOL.
1: Yeah. Like decimated. Yes. Cause some of them, cause I, they also determined like, a lot of this information—it's not like insider information. You—you you can just basically do the math because you have—you get to see, you know, the market capitalization that's out there. You get to see like, number of shares that number are of around. shares that are being circulated and whatever else. And you, like, it's not hard to really just kind of figure: oh, this hedge fund must have X amount of shares in this. And if they bought it at this lower price, if they bought it at nineteen dollars, trying to whatever I TLDR again I think it was worked out that one of the hedge funds would be out seven point five billion dollars if it would have been like even at the four hundred eighty three dollar mark that's how much they were out Mm -hmm. and you know there was a little bit of like a a cry me a river kind of thing from one of these hedge funds going oh you're gonna ruin us Ah." it's like just like you were gonna ruin GameStop really like what yeah, there's no sympathy for
0: the hedge funds who were upset about this or any sort of, uh, upper one percent, upper crust Wall Street trader, perhaps a one yeah. percenter who, uh, did not enjoy the sudden influx of, uh, common traders, uh, into the market. Yeah, the unwashed filth <laughs> buying their one stock. Yes, yes, the unwashed, uneducated filth. Yeah. Not knowing what they're doing. Oh, this is market manipulation, but at the same time, it's just a collective will. Yeah of people on this one community all independently choosing to go forth and purchase these stocks. And I I mean GameStop was the big one, but they were not the only darling of Wall Street bets through 2021.
1: No, no, there was a like another one that also reached gains but not quite to the stratospheric highs that GameStop did like AMC, the the theater company did as well. I actually made a few bucks on one. Like I bought one stock at one point, I think, for like six dollars and sold it at like forty-two. So nice. I'm like, "Well, there we go." Well <laughs> done. That's the level of you know betting I was willing to do. I'm not one of these crazy assholes just putting, you know, putting your literal life savings. Yeah. Oh, I put forty-two thousand dollars on this one stock and oh, oh I lost it all. Whoops! <laughs> it's like, no, are you insane? <laughs> Holy hell! Jesus H Christ! <laughs> so. No, I wasn't one of those people. Like, no, no, I like to keep my bets small. Yes. You know, for, for goofy, volatile stocks, like not when I'm like, you know, actually seriously investing. Like, I'm not going to seriously invest in one of these meme stocks. If you're seriously investing,
0: you'll be directed to something more stable, more steady rate of, rates of return. Yeah.
1: Like, like, you know, like an S&P 500 index or something more along those lines. Like, Mm -hmm. go through that. Don't, like, no, like, yeah okay, I'm going to sound like a boomer investor. Like, you know, that's another thing that Wall Street Bets likes to kind of despair. It's like, oh, listen, all the boomer investors talk about their S&P 500s. It's like, no, but like like Warren Buffett said, if you want to get rich, invest it in the S&P 500. It's always going to go up. Like, like yeah, they'll have dips and stuff, but if you look at the performance of that in the last five years, it's pretty much a line that goes like almost 45-degree angle to the right Mm -hmm. up. So... It's almost a no brainer. Like, it,
0: yeah, it's like a roller coaster that's on a permanent ascent. Yeah, like it's always still climbing.
1: Yeah, like there there will be dips and stuff, but it's like as long as like it it's a long term go- play. This is not like that. This is not sustainable. Like this is a get rich quick scheme that will probably eighty percent backfire in your face. Absolutely, but for those twenty percent of people who actually
0: cashed in, they may have had paper hands or whatnot, but cashed out and made money on this. There are some people who made life-changing money.
1: Yeah, of course, which is good for them. Like, it, it's good to see that, but still, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's like whenever you, you see people basically fluke into something and they'll either go viral or their company succeeds in some unorthodox way or whatever, then they end up writing a book being like, well, everyone should do this. It's like, no. No, everyone shouldn't do that. Like, literally, like, you captured lightning in a bottle and you can't really do that for any other people. Like, that's... You can try to write a book on it, but it's not gonna work for anyone but you because you had those instincts and all these other things. Like, that, that's...
0: You had, you were there at that specific point in time. Yeah. That you cannot recapture that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think the moment, uh, and hoopla of GameStop can be recaptured, not with AMC, not with, uh, there was a couple others that are escaping me at this moment. Uh, there may have been like a restaurant uh, chain or something.
1: Yeah, something uh, like that. And I, I think there was probably some weed company as well. Yeah,
0: that sounds familiar too. Shocking. But uh, AMC was the big one. Although uh, on the flip side of uh, uh, Wall Street Bets and GameStop uh, and running that up just to, you know, rub it in the noses and faces of hedge fund managers, a lot of Wall Street Bets in the community are disciples of Elon Musk as well, and they're also bidding up Tesla as, like, as,
1: as all get out. Yeah, that, that's, I would say that that's their toxic trait, personally, you know, not, not being one to, you know, want to, you know, be a bootlicker of that kind, you know, like really... I'm not gonna get into all the reasons why I think Elon, you know, is maybe not the best person to look up to, there's enough evidence on the internet though, that you can kind of look yourself and yeah, but yeah, that's the Tesla stock thing is such a weird one because like so many people on wall street bets are diamond hands for Tesla. And yeah, Tesla is definitely one of like the major, like they're, they're not part of the Fang group, but like they're, they're close in terms of like market capitalization
0: They certainly are. They've quickly, over the past, say, two years, become one of the most valuable companies on the U.S. stock market.
1: Which doesn't really
0: make sense. No, certainly not. They still have a whole shitload of debt. Yeah. And Uh, it's only recently they've started to have production be able to match uh, their
1: predictions. Yeah. Like, if you look at car stocks, like, they shouldn't be passed forward in terms of valuation, for example, But they are, and it's purely because of, you know, the, the cult of personality that's been built up around Elon and also certain other aspects of Elon Musk, like he has, whether he likes it or not, he has become an influencer of such in, you know, other stocks and crypto markets and stuff like that as well. Like sometimes he'll post things on his Twitter and people like people analyze every tweet he makes. And they go really deep trying to figure out what things mean. And sometimes you'll see like certain cryptocurrencies like Dogecoin has had a couple of like major spikes because of goofy pictures of dogs that Elon Musk has tweeted. Like that's insane. Like, what the hell is that? Taking it as some sort of cue or some sort of reference
0: or, or a secret code that it means something that, oh, Elon is speaking, uh, our prophet is giving us a command or something.
1: Whereas in reality, he was just probably retweeting some goofy picture of a dog while he was taking his shit on the toilet. Like, that's your prophet? Like, what are you... really
0: out of his mind, by the way.
1: Probably, yeah. He does enjoy his weed. Yeah. Though he says he doesn't, but we all saw that clip from that Joe Rogan episode.
0: It's true. He, uh, he was presented and uh, he did not pass. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, so yeah, uh, certainly, uh, Wall Street Bets was a major player in the early part of the year, uh, to, uh, get the ball rolling on the idea that perhaps money and large sums of money don't really mean what they used to and are now being used for more ridiculous things
1: yes which uh definitely brings us to another troubling trend of 2021 which is a fun little alliterative twist brain twister or tongue twister to say uh nfts it's another elephant in the room which i i think we've talked about enough where we really don't want to have to keep talking about them but here we are nfts NF- non non-fungible tokens yes non fun tokens yeah. <laughs> which uh if you don't know what they are we envy you. I really envy you and I don't I I would like to know what kind of rock you've been living under because it seems pretty good right about now. Yeah, we we enjoy that rock. Uh
0: it it it'd be nice to go back to a time, a simpler time before we knew what the hell NFTs were and they took up so much so much oxygen, so much space. Uh, but NFTs, if you somehow have escaped knowing what those are to this point, one, again, we envy you, but two, they are digital files that are sold off as collector's editions or limited editions or some level of scarcity.
1: They're not the digital files; they are. But that's right. Yeah. So an NFT is a record in a blockchain that you, like, you are now the owner of a digital file with a specific checksum, which means some creator might've made an MP3 file or a JPEG file or something like that. And then that file is basically run through what they call an MD, like, like like a a checksum checker that basically translates the file into like it, it figures out all of the bits of the file and then calculates that into like a stable 128 character checksum. So it's like this checksum equals or some amount of character checksum might be more than that. But that, this checksum of this file with this name was purchased by this person on this date, so this person owns this file, technically. But all you're purchasing is that record, you're not technically purchasing the file. Yeah, essentially you're purchasing the receipt. Yes. What, <laughs> it was actually a funny thing that I read someone post uh, a couple weeks ago where they were saying, remember those things in like, you know, the 80s and 90s where it's like, oh, all of the stars in the sky. You can purchase a star in the sky and give it to someone and say that's your star. Those are the original NFTs. <laughs> I don't know. Some of our listeners might be too young to remember that, but that was a big thing in the late '80s, early '90s. Oh yeah, I certainly recall seeing you know
0: tables and, and kiosks in my local shopping centers with people selling, uh, if not stars, they were selling pieces uh, plots of land on the moon.
1: Yeah, goofy things like that that you you know you're not actually the owner of, but. You know, oh, my my friend spent $20 on this star in my name, so that star is mine. It's like, no, it's not. It's like, really? Can you point it out? Where is it? And also, what authority does this one random company that was in the mall in a kiosk have over the entire night sky? Really? So, yeah, anyways, that's what someone equated this to, which is hilarious to me. And, uh yeah, but NFTs... Holy crap. So you and I
0: hadn't really heard about NFTs in any prominent or regular fashion prior to 2021. No. And when we first really heard about NFTs, they were kind of percolating and then really punched through the murmurs to prominence with the first story we ever covered and talked about uh, NFTs back from March of 2021 when a digital art file sold at auction for 69 million dollars
1: which in and of itself probably was a meme as as well thinking about it
0: yes if they couldn't reach 420 million dollars then they'd settle for 69 million yeah as as the sum total but it was a jpeg file uh made by digital artist people otherwise known to his parents i'm sure as mike winkleman and sold at Auctions at Christie's Auction House in New York City for $69.3 million.
1: Yeah. So, again, a JPEG file that was, you know, it's a piece of art, of course, but like, you know, still a JPEG file, which, by the way, in case you're not clear, in case you're not sure, no, this is, this actually isn't any sort of DRM or anything. This doesn't prevent you from making a copy of this file yourself to have on your own computer. Mm-hmm. It's just literally saying, oh, I'm the one that actually bought that file. It's like, okay, good. So it's, it's like, it's like taking a picture of the Mona Lisa going, wow, the, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the owner of that without getting to take it home and not stopping anyone else from taking pictures of it sound crazy it is yeah it is
0: 69 million dollars for that so the bidding on this digital art file done by Beeple started life at a hundred dollars it was an auction that lasted two weeks and got up to 69.3 million dollars and so that amount that 69.3 even though it was a digital file still became the third most expensive piece of artwork sold by a living artist
1: at auction yeah. According to Christie's. Which is bananas. To be up there with all of the artists who have ever lived in history to have art sold while they were alive. To be in the top three for highest earning? And it's a JPEG. And it's some just JPEG. Like, not to disparage people, but like, think of all the artists who, you know, have been alive since Christie's auctions have been you know, running. And Christie's is not a fly-by-night operation. No, they've been around for a couple, what, hundred years? That feels right to me. Yeah, so... Like, that could be, like, anyone from, like, Norman Rockwell to, like... Who knows, right? Like, great American... Picasso. Picasso, even. Like, Picasso has been alive in the last... Hundred years. Hundred years. Yeah. You know, like, like Dolly? True. Sure Same too. thing, like, uh, Beeple's gonna be up with the, some of these, you know, giants of art history? I mean maybe he might be but you know you shouldn't be considered that so like that it's too recent you know like it it takes time to be considered a classic like you you're not declared a classic overnight that's insane right you, time moves faster
0: in 2021 I, I guess so so this is uh I mean, perhaps a continuation of something we noted in twenty twenty. How it felt like with the start of the pandemic, time just slowed. Right the, right the fudge down, uh to basically impulse power, and then kick back up to warp speed.
1: Yeah, to like high, high warp speed, high like, warp speed, like warp, like,
0: warp eight, warp eight, and then twenty twenty one apparently, warp nine, warp nine at
1: times while simultaneously also going in reverse. Yeah, it's warp nine backwards. It's very strange. Very strange. Exactly.
0: Try and figure it out. We can't. So, uh, w- along with that, I guess the uh, figure came the the gold rush, if yeah. you will, of anyone and everything into the NFT market. With uh, companies who did not know it was a thing, trying to rush into it, seeing that there's oh, there's money to be had. There's gold in them dare hills. Yeah, exactly. Of NFTs uh, and any there's every- gold in them. There files. There's gold and then there are blockchains. Yes. <laughs> like one of the more egregious examples is the guy who had the one hit wonder in the 80s of Pac-Man fever came out with like an NFT song uh, that he sold as an NFT. And I think was pretty clear that he didn't really know what the hell NFTs were. He just was literally trying to cash in. Yep. And just lazily reworked some lyrics to not be about Pac-Man, but instead talk about NFTs and blockchains and things. Like, literally one verse, uh, I have it on my paper here, quote, I got a wallet full of coins, so I'm headed to the blockchain, going to check out all the markets,
1: and maybe sell a few things I've made. Yeah, so... Okay. Okay, oversimplification, and also not a particularly great rhyme, little bit of a clumsy rhyme, not to, you know, Shittle over someone else's work or anything like that, but come on, man. Back to the drawing board, Grandpa. Yeah, but whatever, I guess. uh, Did we ever look into how much he made off of that? Because it it couldn't have been $69 million. No,
0: uh, I mean, he probably would have settled for a a ham sandwich. (laughs) Just enough to buy a ham sandwich, that's my guess. Just some liver and onions. Mm.
1: Well, you know, tastes change as you get older. Yeah, I, I guess so. I'm uh, not there yet, but, you know, <laughs> one day we'll see.
0: I'll be your accountability buddy <laughs> once the liver and onion start, <laughs> plates start coming your way. Yes. i would be like, Dennis, what are you doing? We're not there yet. Come on, man. This is an
1: intervention?
0: <laughs> Stop it.
1: Yes. Here, do you want me to order you a steak? I'll order you a steak. You are at least 45 years too young to be ordering that. Come on. <laughs> Why are you ordering it at 5 in the afternoon? Yeah. Come on. Stop it. Oh, early bird? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, we're getting a steak at 7 p.m. and that's it. Okay? Fine.
0: I don't care if you're tired now. Oh, fine. Close your eyes. I don't care. Fine. <laughs> close your eyes. I'll wake you when it's time to get a steak. Yeah. It's steak o'clock. Yes, it's steak o'clock. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but <laughs> other people like like I said, came out of the woodworks to cash in on the NFTs. Edward Snowden being one of those people who came out of the woodworks. Uh, who had an NFT self-portrait that sold for $5.4 million worth of the cryptocurrency known as Ether. Uh, it was titled Stay Free. At least this transaction, there was some element of charity to it as well, as the proceeds from the sale of that NFT Snowden portrait went to the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which is a non organization that develops open-source tools for whistleblowers and works to shield journalists from state-sponsored hackers and government surveillance. And Snowden has been the president of that organization since 2017. Yeah, which, I mean, it's a good cause. Totally. Makes sense. Uh, but then others who, again, you wouldn't think would get involved in the blockchain, get in the blockchain, like Merriam-Webster's, the dictionary people. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was another fun one. Does,
0: does this all sound stupid? It was. Yeah. We talked about it, but the NFT, uh, there was an NFT made for the definition of NFT, of NFT, yeah, done by Merriam-Websters, and it was put up for sale on the uh, marketplace known as OpenSea. At least that one was charitable as well. Proceeds went to Teach For All, which is an international network uh, focused on improving and expanding access to education. Uh, whoever the person who purchased this NFT of the definition of the term NFT did not get any sort of tax break. So there is that. Uh, we also didn't know if the charitable group got the money in cash or Ethereum. Yeah. Because blo- like cryptocurrency is involved all throughout any sort of NFT transaction.
1: Yeah, because the NFTs in and of themselves are on a blockchain, and there's always some aspect of that blockchain being tied back to a currency as well. So, yeah, it's one and of the same. I mean, Sega also got in on this as well, talking about Companies that maybe didn't maybe you're clearly just trying to strike at the gold rush. Uh April twenty seventh was when they announced their deal there. Uh yeah, they were gonna start
0: releasing NFTs of art assets. Yeah, I think like from Sonic, some other games.
1: Yeah, things like Sonic the Hedgehog and whatnot. But uh yeah. <laughs> and then and then as we got further on into the summer, then we saw more confusing grasping at straws, like Fox and Dan Harmon decided to Uh, team up to start to to develop a blockchain animated television series, which is a mouthful slash word salad to say. Yeah, that doesn't really mean anything.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So the, the, the idea is that, uh, Fox and I guess Dan Harmon were teaming up to create a new uh, company, uh, called an NFT focused company called Blockchain Creative Labs. Uh, and, uh, they were going, that company was going to work with Dan Harmon to, uh, develop a new uh, crypto-related animated series that would be, quote, curated entirely on the blockchain, end quote. Hmm. It's a new show called Crapopolis, uh, basically set in Greek times about the gods, and uh, I'm sure it would be a very unflattering portrait of the gods and civilization in that era. But how how do you put an animated series entirely on the blockchain and curate it and develop it entirely
1: through blockchain and and things of that nature? And what does that even mean? Like how, what's the point of tying a blockchain into this? Like, like what, like, I don't understand. Exactly. We still don't know. Do they understand? Like what is, what's the whole point of all of this? No. Just to all your
0: questions, a blanket? No. But one of the more ridiculous ones, uh, June 29th, uh, is when we got uh, wind that Sam Altman, who's the former CEO of the tech incubator Y Combinator, uh, I guess started doing some some press and doing some media talking about the fact that they're working on a new cryptocurrency that they uh, aim uh, for it to be distributed to everyone on Earth and act as a universal basic income for everybody.
1: Yeah, and it's the, the name, I don't know if it was a workshop name or if it's the final name, but they're calling it WorldCoin. And the the crazy part about it was that everyone who wants it has to scan their eyeball.
0: Yes, uh, because
1: apparently they try to claim that everyone's eyeball is unique, but is it? Is it going to be?
0: And the company that uh, Sam Altman was behind to do this and to distribute this world coin, this universal 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 basic income, uh received 25 million dollars in a round of investment uh from
1: various People's, which should just about cover everyone's basic income across the whole world, right? Just so close—twenty-five <laughs> million dollars for everyone in the world. <laughs> we're right there. <laughs>
0: we're <laughs> if you give right now, we're so close to reaching our goal. <laughs> which I'm sure was the was the pitch he gave to the uh, the investment uh, people he
1: had lunch with. All I need is twenty-five million dollars, and I can turn that into. Billions of dollars every year somehow, even though I'm giving it away to people. Like,
0: so, so wait, what do we get for this investment in your company of just redistributing our money to
1: people? Why, well, you get this nifty tote bag. Yeah. <laughs> you get, you get this cool eyeball scanning technology that makes us feel like we're in Blade Runner. Ooh.
0: So yeah, it uh, would require like basically head scanning devices that themselves cost five grand each to make and, and, uh, It was going to be a crypto, kind of like Bitcoin, but uh, better in some ways. Uh, A a wild scattershot idea, but really one of the most uh, satirical uh, distillations of the NFT craze, that there was just a goddamn rush of tech people with, you know, big tech money into this thing that is being heralded as the next big thing, and it's going to be revolutionary, and it's like, you know, this dawn of the commercial internet all over again. But no one really knows what the hell it is.
1: Yeah. So- and then, like, even taking this a little bit further, I think towards, you know, the end of the summer, uh a couple of art groups kind of, it seems like they took this whole... How ridiculous the NFT craze was um, to the next level, basically, and made some basic art and then used computer technology to generate a huge amount of variations on that basic art, and sold all of these variations as collections on the OpenSea market. Uh, the first of which being, is said like, uh, and this is not good art. Like this is like trash art. All oh of yeah, it. like the the first thing being uh someone made uh a collection called Ether Rock that was essentially just NFT NFTs of clip art rocks in a few different like well, like I think a hundred different um variations. You know variations on shadows and colors and
0: maybe they're wearing a hat or something.
1: Yeah, things like that. But just literally clip art rocks. Like yes. Like the pet rock. Yeah. <laughs> remember that craze as well? Yes, in the seventies. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying remember it because <laughs> neither of us actually remember it, but like we've heard about it on, you know, from our parents or media, media or grandparents, or whatever class else, or history something. class, something like that. The pet rock craze, kind of like the NFT reboot of that. Uh, and then there was the other group, uh, the, what were they called again? The Oh Board
0: Ape Yacht Club. The, the
1: Board Ape Yacht Club, where they they released 101 computer generated NFT apes, where you know it was basically like they got some artist to make you know the the basic version of the ape face or like the bust of the ape essentially, and then they just put a bunch of like they made sunglasses, like various pairs of glasses, various hats, and whatever else, and then just. Ran it through a computer just to generate these random combinations of, like, hat, glasses, necklaces, shirt, whatever these apes are all wearing. Background color. Background color, things like that. So, a hundred of those went out. And, yeah, both of these collections ended up making some serious cash. The Bored Ape Yacht
0: Club, uh, as a collection of those 101 apes, sold for 24.4 million U.S. dollars, which is... A ridiculous amount of money for yeah. some procedurally generated apes and the uh, the rocks the nft rocks those i believe it 's ether rock they were called yeah uh, the rocks themselves were sold individually, but some selling for as low as thirty seven hundred u s dollars uh, some going upwards of almost a quarter million dollars, yeah, just under at two hundred and forty eight thousand u s dollars. Which was ridiculous, and, uh, the article at the time, uh, we were talking about this had quotes from some of the people who bought these Ether Rocks, and the explanations just made no goddamn sense. No. Uh, one of them that I have here, uh, one of the people who bought an Ether Rocks said, quote, as we get into an age of digital collectibles being one of the earliest forms of the art and the first to do something, uh, do something gives them uh providence that is valuable. The Pedrocks present the shock value value, it's so stupid that it's perfect. Fate loves irony. End quote. Uh, another one telling Motherboard, uh the news outlet Motherboard, that quote, uh these buys were either the quote, stupidest or the most incredible decision of our lives. Uh this person adding to Motherboard that the concept struck them as dumb at first, but FOMO kicked in the fear of missing out kicked in and they went ahead and spent $25,000 for the receipt that they own an image of a pet rock. Yeah. So, So there's a hysteria that really kicked up and swirled around NFTs, but some of the negatives really got ignored and perhaps downplayed.
1: Yeah. Like a lot of the rug pulling that was happening, rug pulling, meaning when creators, uh, you know, make one of these projects like a like a board ape or whatever else um and then take the money and then don't actually deliver anything which happened at, you know multiple times as well uh including like uh, another project which wasn't the Bored Ape Yacht Club but it was another project called Evolved Apes
0: which i'm sure was trying to cash in on the uh the ape thing yeah the success of the Bored Ape Yacht Club a month earlier uh but it went on, on sale on October 7th and basically uh, a few days later uh the creator pulled everything and absconded with the money yeah or the cryptocurrency which was then translated into real world dollars yeah and i think a day or two later there's about four or five other projects that had rug pulls as well. Yeah. So the people who put their money in, uh, for this project to, to purchase, uh, whatever, they get nothing and they're out there.
1: Cryptocurrency and they're SOL. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, again, I'd like to think that like buyer beware should always be top of mind, but you're paying, Thousands of dollars for a JPEG file, so if you're at that point, you're too far gone for buyer beware, I think.
0: Yeah, you are pot committed at that point, and obviously not gonna be talked out of it.
1: Yeah, like, it's like, what are you buying? Good sense, out the window. It's like, what's the investment opportunity even for this? Like, you're hoping to sell this for more money later? Who else is gonna be stupid enough to buy this?
0: Yeah, the hysteria of it is now. Yeah.
1: Hysteria is going to cool off in temper with time. Of course. It always does. But, yeah, I, the rug pulling was a thing. But, again, like, you know, lots of companies like Sega, um, uh, who else we had mentioned earlier? Um, uh, there's There was a oh, few yeah. others. Uh, I think Atari
0: did Atari, stuff.
1: Fox, whatever else. Yeah. Like A lot of companies basically, you know, getting into the whole blockchain and crypto thing just because it seemed like it was the right thing to do. Um the one of the later ones in the year was Intellivision, you know, uh the version of Tom tel- of uh tele- television that's currently out there, I believe headed up by our old t- friend t- t- Tommy Tellerico. Old friend
0: of the show, Tommy Tellerico. <laughs> uh, I can uh, I could give him a call right now, see what's up, but I won't. He's probably busy.
1: <laughs> with his probably dead burner cell phone number that he gave us like when we interviewed him like fourteen years ago. Uh yeah, so
0: <laughs> Sounds like a big number when you say it like that.
1: Yeah, but uh <laughs> yeah. So in television, it's been uh, th- their whole Amico thing, which is supposed to be their new uh, system, has basically been promised for what three years now. Feels like it, and it hasn't been delivered. But what they did start offering is you to be able to buy the games as NFTs. Um. Over the past year, but, but you still can't actually buy the system, but the games can be bought as NFTs. Yes. Uh,
0: each copy of the game will act as an NFT and be part of the blockchain that makes ownership quote fully transferable. So just so an FYI, but you don't have the device necessarily to play it on that yeah. it's supposed to be paired with, but yeah, you can, you can buy it and there's an element of nfts and, and blockchain to it as well because these are the popular buzz terms so yeah
1: totally get in on that yeah uh, and then by the end of the year i think that the satire of you know what nfts are or, and well generally enough public consciousness um saturation about what nfts are start to happen that really good satirical takes started to also happen um like an australian developer towards the end of november Uh, released or developed a site called the NFT Bay, uh, which was a riff on the old pirate bay, if you remember that. Uh, you know, it's basically a place where, you know, the actual files themselves from various NFTs that were purchased can just be downloaded for free.
0: Yeah. So you know how you can go onto an NFT, you know, if you see it on OpenSea and do right click, save image as that kind of jazz. Yeah. Well, it's a collection. It's a whole bunch of NFT images and, and whatever else, gifs, gifs, whatever, uh, collected into a, an almost 20 terabyte torrent, uh, that was, I believe, scoured from, uh, every NFT available through the Ethereum and Solana blockchains.
1: Yeah, so like, is it, of course, like, it was a satirical take, but the, the big, like, actual serious point that, uh, this developer, whose name was uh, Jeffrey Huntley, Again, I mentioned it's not relevant necessarily where he's from. But he's an Australian software developer or DevOps engineer, I should say. Normally, uh, where he he said, funda- like the big problem with NFTs is that he said fundamentally, I hope people learn to understand what you're actually buying when you're purchasing NFT art right now is that it's more it's nothing more than directions on how to access or download an image, and because it, the image itself is not actually stored on the blockchain, and the majority of images that Huntley has seen are actually hosted on web 2.0 storage. That does invariably mean that at some point, all of the images on a blockchain could end up being 404s, which means like, because like, uh, let's say I'm, you know, selling you an NFT. I have to host it on some server that I'm paying for. Let's say in five years I've eh, I don't care about keeping this server or this domain alive anymore. I'm killing it. Now the blockchain that had a link to whatever something.com slash link to your jpeg mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Now you don't actually have the file and you've paid for nothing. You have literally nothing to show for it. Literally nothing. Yeah. So like that's, that's actually what it is. Like OpenSea might disappear tomorrow. Yeah. There's nothing saying OpenSea has to stay around. Yeah. Could be a long con rug pull for all we know. Entirely possible. Um, but then also, yeah. So that was a, that was a big satirical take, but I also feel like another more meta satirical take happened in December where, uh, <laughs> another weird thing went up for auction on Christie's. I'm going to say it was a meta take on the whole NFT excess, but I do know also that because it was on Christie's, that means it went up for real. Uh, it's that you know, uh, the very first edit to Wikipedia, which was a hello world declaration, which, you know, if you're in software development, you know that usually the, it's, it's tradition to, that the, the first thing you develop with a piece of software, the, the first bit of code you write should just be hello world, just so you get a very high level understanding of like, oh, this is how I output stuff to the screen with this programming language. But, and like, Wikipedia was no different, so, you know, the first edit, which was out there on July, or January of 2001, was a Hello World. But somehow, I, I don't know if it was a screenshot or what, but that first post, that first edit has made its way up to Christie's Auction House back in December 3rd as an NFT in and of itself. Which is bananas.
0: So at least there was a charitable aspect to this as well with Jimmy Wales the well founder one of the uh or co-founder of Wikipedia putting this up and then download or not downloading yeah downloading profits no <laughs> uh giving the proceeds from this sale of his uh, Wikipedia NFT to his current project WT social which he bills as a quote non-toxic alternative to major social platforms like Facebook or Reddit uh, Christie's also, Auction House also said the funds would go toward supporting a, quote, variety of charities that align with Wales's pro-free culture ethos. So,
1: yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah, fine. But very meta. Yeah. The first Wikipedia entry put up as an NFT. Don't know what it ultimately sold for. Yeah. Kind of lost track of that story. But a story that I'm sure we'll keep uh, talking about through the course of 2022 is the fact that Ubisoft... Late in the year, last year, launched their own NFT platform called Quartz that... uh You and I had a field day talking about it when the news came out because they're using an energy-efficient technology, that's directly quoting the press release, that uses, quote, a million times less energy than a Bitcoin transaction, end quote.
1: Yeah. So, okay. But, like, yeah. A- anyways... If you want to go back, find our show back from, you know, early December when we talk about this. Uh, yeah. So, so far, the only
0: NFTs Ubisoft has offered are, uh, for the game, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint uh, on the PC. Their NFTs are not called NFTs, they're called Digits. It makes them different. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and so far, my sense is they have not been well-received, but
1: uh, we'll see how those are received going forward. Yeah. Uh, Kickstarter also decided around the same time to move their platform over to the blockchain, which in a way does also kind of make sense. Like when you're thinking about like financial transactions, the blockchain could be seen as somewhat of a general ledger. Mm-hmm. You know, like this this purchase was made on this date, this purchase was made on that date, and it's good to have an indelible, you know, unchangeable, consistent record of transactions that were made you know and like so that makes sense but yeah i I don't know if meaningfully it actually would have any change in terms of like how we view how a kickstarter campaign progresses it it felt more felt more just like a that well we'll release this press release is just something to put out there not necessarily that it means anything right like it's just sort of like okay well now we're we're using this technology, so there you go
0: okay thanks. why'd you have to put out a press not only did Kickstarter put out uh, a press release for it, but the uh, some the two of the site's co-founders put out their own
1: blog post on the company's official blog page, yeah, to tie into it as well, yeah, which is like okay you, you guys are all in on this but like a big underlying part of a lot of like the posts were that like it's like you should notice no difference it's like well what are you making a big huge post for like post the thing on your developer blog and that's it like beyond that it's not like you're just trying to cash in otherwise right
0: yeah yeah we should not notice any disruption of service that thank you for continuing this site to operate as it should yeah good good job so there's that, but a story we didn't uh, actually get to talk about because it came out uh, too late in the year, but Peter Molyneux is another one of the tech guys throwing his name into this NFT pool that uh, is quickly filling up with uh, way too many people, uh, and he put out a press release that amounted to a just a word salad of an announcement, saying that his next project is, quote, an innovative new game that pushes the boundaries of blockchain gaming. It's called Legacy. It's being developed by his studio, 22Cans, and apparently boasts the first-ever blockchain business sim. In this game, Legacy will be a, quote, creative entrepreneur's dream come true, an opportunity for players to build their very own business, designing their very own products from a huge array array of possibilities, as they create a business empire the likes of which the world has never seen.
1: Yeah, and he also goes on to say, uh, in the game, players will also be able to own a quote, land NFT to start your own in-game blockchain business association. End quote. Like,
0: what? <laughs> So this game also uses a new cryptocurrency, which is based on the Ethereum blockchain. This game uses something called Legacy Coin. Uh, uh, the blog post heralding this announcement went on to say, quote, Legacy is a game that leverages player ownership, play-to-earn economy, lend-to-earn, highly-functional NFTs, and a truly unique community-driven economy. And this is just the beginning, end quote. This is just the beginning and it's all these things. So not long after the announcement put out by Peter Molyneux, uh, about this game, uh, I guess some of those land NFTs went up for sale and this, I guess collectively sold, uh, roughly 55 million US dollars worth of, uh, land NFTs.
1: Good god. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, the the one last statement here that we had from that one initial press release here, it says, and I quote, Legacy is here to push the boundaries of blockchain gaming beyond your wildest dreams. End quote. I don't know why, but that reminds me of an old website called Zombo.com, which, you know, uh for our younger listeners, it might mean nothing. Even for some of our older listeners who, you know, are as internet- you know, connected as we have been for the last 25 years. Um, Yeah, it might have flew under your radar, but it was a Bananas website that had no con. It was basically no content visually, just like it was essentially what could amount to a spinning wheel, Mm -hmm. like the spinning Mac beach ball kind of wheel on the site with the word zombo.com at the top. And it was like some Pacific Islander guy. It was a three-minute loop of this guy just – talking about all the great things about Zombo.com, just referring to Zombo.com as welcome to (laughs) Zombo.com. Everything is possible at Zombo.com. The infinite is attainable at Zombo.com. And it was just empty phrases like that for three minutes with increasing ridiculousness. And it just never ended. Like, if you you could leave it on and it would just be constantly going all day, like it was back in the days when, like, you know, it's easy to ding together a quick Shockwave Flash website and have just, like, an interactive video like that loop forever on your site. But that's what a lot of these press releases are reminding me of. It's like nothing. Puffery. Just empty, hollow puffery. Yeah, it's like there's nothing here. (laughs)
0: It's true. Yeah. A- and everyone, all these press releases have the same general theme that herald NFTs as the next generation of, of business and development and blah, 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 as though it's some, some utopian future that is now going to be imparted upon humanity thanks to NFTs, yeah. as though they're aliens that have landed from a faraway land and are going to bring their technology to better all of us here down on Earth. But it's not enough that NFTs are on a web platform, uh, on your computer screen, desktop, laptop, perhaps even on your phone, if you are going that route as well. Uh, One company out there is uh, believing it worthy to put NFTs on your television screen. Samsung revealing at uh, the 2022 uh, Consumer Electronics Show that they are going to be developing a marketplace for NFTs that will be accessible through your Samsung television screen. They're calling it the world's first TV screen-based NFT explorer and marketplace aggregator. Uh They're calling it the NFT
1: aggregation platform. Why didn't they call it NFTV? Like, come on. Like, missed opportunity. Oh, th- painfully missed opportunity. Like,
0: <laughs> holy hell. That will be one of the... the you know, uh footnotes when the history of this is written that Samsung had an opportunity for a great name and missed it. They whiffed. And they just totally dropped the ball, yeah. Sure did. But this platform, that's not NFT TV, will reportedly allow buyers to preview NFTs that are available for purchase and also learn their history from, quote, who created it
1: to what comprises its blockchain metadata. So, like, you remember in, like, you know, watching movies from, like, the late 70s and the early 80s, or even I guess going as far back as the 60s sometimes, when you would see like science fiction movies and, you know, things like that, where the depiction of like, uh, how, what, I, in some cases the internet wasn't a thing that people conceptualized yet, but there would often be weird little tie-ins where people would picture that you'd be able to buy things from your TV. Mm-hmm. Are we just trying to fulfill that weird prospect now? As well? Uh, well I think when those, uh,
0: that concept of of a a future was uh, displayed in those earlier eras,
1: they may have been uh, thinking that people would buy tangible things from their TV. No, of course, like, you know, like, uh, I do remember, I wanna say it might have been things like, uh, Maybe Doctor Who or something or whatever kind of like old sci-fi. Jetsons. Things. Jetsons could be a thing like that, but just showing you know, clicking through your TV. It's like, oh, I'm just going to buy some groceries. Boop. Go go onto the grocery purchase channel and watch the thing. I'll click the button and buy all the things I want to buy. It's like, yeah, that that makes more sense. Th- <laughs> like you're literally paying for I, I don't know. Anyways, like yeah, NFTs. Let's get off this topic before it angers up my our blood too much it's uh, because true. it's not also it's not the last of the well let's just say stupid money that you know going towards things that don't make any sense um Topics. <sighs> topic. No, like the w- which the, for that one I ter- I
0: for our organizational purposes here I termed that topic stupid goddamn NFTs. Yes. Uh And our next topic I termed collectibles market loses its goddamn
1: mind. Yeah. Um. So like there's there's been a little bit of controversy around the video game collectible. Well, specifically video game collectible market. You know, thinking that it might actually be. Artificially being pumped by certain groups and stuff and all that aside, we we don't, like, we're not gonna speak to the, uh, you know, the legitimacy, the legitimacy of those claims necessarily right now, but basically just gonna remind you that, hey, 2021 was the year that video games became unattainably expensive if you wanted to get into like, you know, kind of niche collectibles.
0: Yeah, the the year that uh, collectible video games in that whole market just went absolute goddamn bananas. Yeah. Like out the wazoo. And it's been working up to that point for the previous couple of years where uh, it was really something notable if uh, we here on the arcade came across the story of a video game uh, selling at auction or something for six figures. Yeah. Well, the year of uh, 2021, the first big game to be sold at auction was a sealed copy of Super Mario Brothers that sold for $660,000. Yeah. And that was put up for auction by Heritage Auctions and earned a 9.6 A-plus rating from Wata. Those are two names that really permeated all of the big collectible transactions in 2021.
1: Yeah. Wata and Heritage Auctions.
0: They are the ones that have questions around them, thanks to certain investigators uh, online and videos posted to YouTube that really, really make you stop and think and wonder, Huh. It's like, yeah, what? What's all behind this? Yeah, exactly. We're not here to litigate all that. So look it up for yourself. That's, that's fine. But, uh, so that sold for 660,000. Uh, then in July, I, I'm skipping over one thing, but I'll get to July. The next big, you know, old retro NES cartridge that sold at auction was, uh, something that topped that April transaction. Uh, in July there was a copy of a still sealed copy of Legend of Zelda for the NES that sold for $870,000 at auction uh and Heritage Auctions again the ones behind this uh, said that it's an early production copy of the first game in the Zelda series and is quote no doubt the apotheosis of rarity cultural sign- significance and collection centerpieces Essentially, this copy is the earliest sealed copy one would real- one could realistically hope to obtain, end quote. That's from Heritage Auctions in their press release about it. Yeah. Uh, the game was, uh, rated, and the box was rated at a 9.0A sealed by Wata, mm-hmm. 10 being the highest possible condition score.
1: Yeah. Wata. Then, yeah. Heritage Auctions. And then again, to bring Wata and Heritage Auctions into this, uh, uh, let's say, well, for for one of the other times, uh, again, like, it just kept getting crazier from there. Like, July, uh, they sold a copy of, a sealed copy of Super Mario 64 for 1.5 million dollars, uh, as, you know, as claimed it was a, uh, well, it, it, it was given a 9.8 rating on the Wada scale, And because of this high rating, Heritage Auctions said it was one of the fewer than five known sealed copies in such incredible condition. So... So, so
0: figure out that evaluation. A game that's, uh, about ten years younger than Legend of Zelda for the NES, uh, with a, you know, a, a better rating, but, uh, perhaps it's still a good deal of amount of cultural significance, but is it the same as the first Legend of Zelda game? Would it be up there? I don't know. But sold for twice, roughly twice, what Legend of Zelda did just a few days earlier.
1: Yeah, and then... Yeah, I, I don't recall if WADA was involved in this one. I don't think they were. In August, um, another rare copy of another game... In this case, Super Mario Brothers uh, set a new record at $2 million. Uh, yeah, it was a report from the New York Times where they were talking about the buyer offering $2 million for this copy, which is factory sealed, professionally graded, and part of a limited print run. Uh, yeah, it was approved by shareholders in the NES game. Yeah, right. So this is the other... Other side to the, uh, perhaps questionable
0: aspect of these collectibles is... Yeah. In twenty twenty one we saw the rise perhaps not launch, but rise and awareness of uh, firms such as Rally yeah. that offer shares in collectible items.
1: Yeah, so essentially like fractional ownership in collectional collection collectible items <laughs> collectional items is not a word. Um collectible items uh yeah, to yeah, to prevent, you know, that that episode of The Simpsons where Bart Martin and Milhouse all bought that rare Radioactive Man comic and then couldn't work out a, uh, you know, who, who got it on what day. Um, yeah, so this is more or less just like this company buys it, holds it in their safe and then sells shares at a certain cost and then. When they sell it, I guess you get your money back. Get your money back,
0: or uh, you, you in theory, partake in the profits of it, but uh, there are some questions raised around firms like Rally, and I think there's one or two others who uh, engage in that. And this was a private transaction, by the way. It was not known who the buyer was, yep. anything of that nature, but $2 million was the price point set for uh, a private sale of Super Mario Brothers, so... Yeah, and that got people talking, of course, but, uh, that same weekend when Heritage Auctions sold the Legend of Zelda game for way too much goddamn money, the Super Mario 64, uh, uh, box, uh, for still way too much goddamn money, they did a big collectible games auction weekend, and some of the other titles sold for that, uh, for, sold during that auction, I should say, still, They fetched stupid prices that the games probably didn't... shouldn't have fetched? No goddamn way they should have fetched that much. A sealed copy of Super Mario World sold for $360,000. An early copy of the first Tomb Raider game sold for one hundred forty-four thousand dollars And even on the low end of perhaps more reasonable, more attainable prices for us common folk here... A copy of Elder Scrolls Skyrim for the Xbox 360, a 10-year-old game, sold for $600. Mm-hmm. And a copy of Red Dead Redemption for the Xbox 360, circa 2010, sold for $384.
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is a good time to come back to uh, one story that we kind of jumped over from June. Uh, so all of these WADA prices... WADA slash – well, uh, Heritage prices, I should say, since they're sold through Heritage. Yes. WADA does the rating. Yeah. WADA does the rating for everything on Heritage Auctions. Like, I don't think you can be even considered for an auction on Heritage Auctions if you haven't been rated through WADA. Whatever. All of that aside, all of the prices feel like they're very, like, artificially pumped up in a crazy way. This this one story that came out from June felt more realistic. It felt more like what actual – what might be an actual price that an actual collector might pay for a thing because this was um, – this this felt more like real people making money and real people benefiting all around rather than just a nebulous force of like some random millionaire or whatever buying a thing for way too much money. mm mm-hmm. um, Yeah, so an employee in good in a Goodwill Texas, a Goodwill store in Texas back in towards the end of June, June twenty fifth, found an extremely rare Atari twenty six hundred game, and the company held an online auction to sell it, and you know if the Heritage auctions thing is to be believed, oh maybe it should have went for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but no, it went for ten thousand five hundred ninety U.S. dollars. Uh, yeah, so it was from what I. Un- recall here understand from this story it was a copy of Air Raid which was released in 1982 published by Menavision and yeah it was in very good condition I don't think it was water rated no I don't think you know anything like that but still 10590 US dollars through a Goodwill auction like if it was put through heritage auctions perhaps with water rating
0: you're looking at 10 times that maybe yeah. Or, or, 20 times, 30 times.
1: Yeah. But also, you're not gonna see a real person buy it, you're not gonna know who bought it. And chances are, it's probably just gonna be part of the collection of someone at here Anyways, we don't need to get into accusations too much here, <laughs> even though it sounds like we really have been accusing them the whole time, but yeah, I- I think the TLDR of this first part is, it seems like Heritage Auctions has been kind of like making this collectible market go bananas.
0: Uh, certainly doing their best to make it go bananas to then pump up the auctions they have and uh, make those go for even more astronomical figures. At least with the Goodwill auction one here with the rare Atari game, that's money that
1: goes back to the Goodwill organization. Which is, you know, doing a lot more good than WADA or Heritage.
0: They are. They, they use that money to employ people in local areas where they have their stores who, uh, have some, maybe perhaps some challenges, perhaps from underrepresented uh, communities, uh, have something that may not make them, uh, you know, able to be employed in perhaps in other select, uh, you know, sectors or whatnot. So, so they're doing good to give back to the community with those dollars, as opposed to, you know, some executives or someone getting rich off the heritage auctions, auctions, which strikes, makes me feel
1: more like they're like the hedge fund people. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Like they're really treating investments more like, they're treating these collectibles more like investments, I should say, rather than like a collectible market and real collectors don't actually care about making profits. Usually like the real collectors care about just bolstering a collection and having, and having things like having a nice, like this is my collection of this and oh, this is the, the crowning jewel of my collection. Like their aim isn't going to be, to sell it all off for a huge profit is to have an impressive looking array of stuff. Yeah, and to talk about it, to complete a collection, maybe there's just like
0: one or two pieces they need left and then they can finish this run of, you know, games for the the Famicom, Super Nintendo, NES, whatever the case might be and uh They're not interested in just buying, holding for six months, a year, turn around and get 100% profit or 100% return on your profit or 100% return on your investment. Excuse me. So, but those people who are the honest to God, true collectors who want to have in their collection to, you know, put with the other stuff on their shelves, basement, whatever else, they're being forced out and drowned out of the market. Yeah, exactly. By basically the, the tech bros, investor bros who see the video games uh, and the collectible video games market as just another avenue for them to make uh, mad stacks of cash. Yeah. But it wasn't just video games.
1: No. I mean, there's also, like, traditionally before video games, um, some of the other things, one of the other main things that people would have turned to in terms of collectibles and making a lot of money was collectible cards. And, like, well... Traditionally, baseball cards and sports cards, hockey cards, whatever else would have yeah. been things before. But you know, in the more recent times, like in the last twenty or so years, we would have seen magic and Pokemon cards also start picking up, and I guess Yu Gi Oh cards and whatever other collectible card games exist out there um, that now have like inbuilt fan bases of the last ten, twenty years. Uh, but Pokemon cards in specific have seen some huge gains.
0: Yeah, 2021, I think, is the year that we saw the, the Pokemon collector card market just go absolute, again, bananas. Yeah, crazy. So I think it probably uh, we had more instances of a Pokemon card or some sort of Pokemon collector card type auction going for six figures than we had instances of like collector old video games come up uh, through the course of just talking about them on the show because it started in january of uh 2021 where first of all there was an unopened box of pokemon trading cards that sold for 408,000 us dollars again the shrink wrap box which was a first edition base set from the original 1999 launch sold at an auction put on by heritage auctions in dallas
1: yeah so again see that name pop up
0: again it, it does uh, but around that same time in January, there was just an individual single Blastoise Pokemon card that sold for 360000 US dollars. Uh, this one, apparently it wasn't your run of the mill Blastoise card, it was a particular card that was part of a test run made by Wizards of the Coast back in 1998 prior to the official launch of the Pokemon trading card game in North America in 1999. So just on the one side is the character art and all that good stuff, and on the other side, it's white. It's not the traditional, like, background or backer-type art Yeah, that you see on the, the
1: Pokemon cards of today. Yeah, and, and another, yeah, exactly. And, and another big number that we saw as well early on in the year, again, we mentioned Pokemon and Magic the Gathering, Uh, because they're both together, I mean, Magic a little bit more so, but both together, those two card games are the OG collectible card games that everyone now has 20 plus years of history with. Uh, and in the case of Magic, I think close to 30. And and it it has happened previously where
0: we've seen uh, some very rare Magic the Gathering cards go for crazy bananas money.
1: Yeah, so this one is less, this one in particular was less surprising because Traditionally in terms of magic the gathering uh, collectible circles this one card has always been kind of the holy grail but whenever whenever one kind of comes up for auction it always fetches a big number and this time that big number for a alpha black lotus card alpha being i believe the first set of magic the gathering cards that came out way back in i think 91 or 2 or something like that don't quote me if i'm wrong I could be wrong, but it was, it was earlier nineties.
0: Yeah, going off the top of your head.
1: Yeah. So like the, the Alpha Black Lotus, Black Lotus be, it's not a legal card anymore, but it was like, for the longest time, super high on the rarity list. Now it went for just shot or just over 500,000 US dollars. So 511,100 US dollars. Uh, yeah, that was back in the end of January. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a lot and impressive considering that uh, i think just the year
0: prior probably something we talked about in 2020 when it came up but uh, there was another alpha black lotus card that sold at auction for $250,000
1: yeah so it's is it doubling every time it sells because like i also remember way back you know when i was a kid first getting into magic cards like looking at you know rarity and price lists for magic cards the black lotus Way back, this would have been probably, you know, when, you know, not too long after Alpha was first released, Black Lotuses were like 600 bucks each, which was again, way more expensive than most other cards, which mm-hmm. were like at most a couple bucks each, but Black Lotuses were like four, $600 in that range. Like, so for now, <laughs> for it to be $500,000, I kind of wish I had that kind of money when I was a little kid just to buy one. You know, like, anyways. Th- th- that's a retirement ticket right there. Yeah, exactly. Or at
0: least, uh you know, a, lo- a good chunk of change to set aside for a, a good uh retirement nest egg. Uh, apparently, the fact that it was an Alpha Black Lotus helped, but its condition, it was rated yeah. as, I think, like a 9.8. Yeah. Not by Wata, but by another more official card rating agency, uh an outfit calling itself PWCC, which is uh, the... Uh, in online collector card selling outlet, they called the uh, card Gem Mint, graded it at a perfect 10, and said it's the single finest Alpha Black Lotus
1: they had ever brokered a sale for. Yeah, and I guess according to Hipsters of the Coast, which is a Magic the Gathering fan blog, uh, it's one of only seven known Mint PSA 10 Alpha Black Lotus uh, cards to exist. So it's in very elite company.
0: So, and these are quotes, and... and- Facts that would pump up and generate even more interest and raise the value of this card, not being done and put out by the
1: auction house. Yeah, exactly. And also, if you think about it, in terms of like the Black Lotus's pedigree, again, it's got twenty plus—I want to say even twenty-five, maybe thirty years worth of like history behind it. Like some of, like as opposed to some of these video games, which are like ten years old. 20 years old, maybe? Like, I don't know. And also, you never really would have considered, like, just to kind of, like, jump back for one second, you never really would have considered Mario 64 as being a super collectible game. No. It was almost the pack-in game for the N64. It was ubiquitous. Almost everyone who had it who had an N64. Yeah. So that that's crazy. Like, whereas a Black Lotus... Almost no one had it i i don 't know a single person that had a black lotus card growing up or now even like apparently there was only eleven hundred copies of the black Lotus
0: card printed in the alpha set uh so there you go there's your scarcity of the alpha black lotus there, but that combined with the uh condition of the card it being rated at uh basically a perfect mint ten out of ten certainly is going to help drive up the value to five hundred uh Oh, over $510,000, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at, but
1: with the popularity of collector cards. And, oh, sorry. And also, sorry, I, I had to look it up. Alpha was released in 1993. So it's almost 30 years old. Yes. Tw- 28 years old. 29. 29.
0: Well, currently no. 29. Yes. At the time of sale, 28. Yes. So even so, seven in that time are still considered like perfect min ten out of tens. Yeah, which is which in and of itself is impressive, yes. Yeah, so you can For understand a, a five hundred thousand dollar valuation. Yeah. Th- that card is five hundred thousand dollars. Sold at auction or five hundred ten thousand. Mario sixty four, one point five million. Yeah. That doesn't
1: make sense to me. Anyways, like yeah, that, that's that's really like the whole crux of a lot of this. Like I think that's maybe the only instance where like there was no real heritage aspect to
0: it uh a little bit there was another auction in april uh that was uh put on by golden auctions uh that was a for a signed pokemon card that went for 250,000 uh sorry just under 247,000 US dollars uh but it was for a 2017 pm sm black star TCP IO1, which is signed by uh, Sunakazu Ishihara, and was a promotional card, so it's a very rare card. It was rated a nine out of ten for that aspect, but done by Golden Auctions, so not Heritage Auctions. Right. Uh, so there's that at least, and we also saw in March a Charizard card go for three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Which uh, you missed out on. I know you're a fan of Charizard. <laughs> <laughs> missed out on that one shucks and darn uh so there's that but the the granddaddy of them all you, you we started this segment off talking about how baseball cards have a very long history sporting cards in general but i think it's more focused on baseball cards as being the most rare most valuable collector cards to go at auction and we see it time and again whenever the honus wagner card
1: comes up for sale yeah it's an early like it's what is it, from like the 30s or something?
0: Uh, if not earlier, I think it's uh, very much turn of the 20th century, if not like 19- 1910s maybe?
1: Yeah, it's one of the early baseball cards, because baseball also is not new,
0: yeah, uh, yeah, baseball as a sport is not a spring chicken, uh, but the story, I believe, the, of the Honus Wagner card is that there's only, there's
1: very few that were ever printed. Ah, oh, uh, sorry. I, I have the Wikipedia page okay. here about the T206 Honus Wagner. Uh, it was designed and issued by the American Tobacco Company, which is ATC, which, yeah, uh, from 1909 to 1911 as part of its T206 series. Uh, Wagner refused to allow production of his baseball card to continue either because he did not want children to buy cigarette packs to get his card or because he wanted more compensation from the ATC. The ATC ended production of the card and only a total of 50 to 200 cards were ever distributed to the public where the exact number is not actually known. And as compared to the tens or hundreds of thousands of T two Oh six cards over three years and 16 brands of cigarettes for any player, uh, Yeah, so very, very rare, very old at this point. Now it's like a hundred ten years old plus. Yep. So, yeah, (laughs) this is the granddaddy of them all, though. Really, in terms of like collectibles, in many ways, sports collectibles certainly. Um, Absolutely, and the one of the those
0: rare, still in existence, still in good condition. T206 Honus Wagner cards came up for auction last summer, back in August, and it was on the morning of Monday, August 16th, that it set a new record for the highest selling sports card of all time, going at auction for 6.606 million US dollars. Yeah. So, 6 million dollars, 6, more than 6.5 million dollars, compared to 6 figures, for some Pokemon cards, or a magic the gathering card, yeah, exactly, um
1: yeah, I mean, that makes more sense to me, because I know like things with like that level of history, like at that point you're getting to like like the greater world collectible series things like you're you're getting into like the realm of like Stradivarius violins and you know other things like that like. Stamps that have been misprinted and whatever else, like... Coins. Coins. Like, things that have, like, value across a... Ne- like, beyond just a niche market of things. Like, this actually has historical significance now at this point in a great broader scheme. Like, and I guess this raises... Like, we've talked about this many times, but, like, is that $1.5 million copy of Super Mario 64... In a hundred years, gonna be revered in the same way as a Honus Wagner T206 card? Probably no, not. No, certainly not. Like, like there's no rarity involved in a copy of Mario 64, like everyone and their dog has one. I've got one somewhere in the, in my house here, it's like, you know, like it's not... It's not a rare game.
0: No, certainly. And regardless of condition, I'm sure there's people who still have it in a good, pristine condition state. There's no, there's no story behind that particular copy of Mario 64 that sold for 1.5 million dollars. Was it rare? Was it owned by the Pope? Was it, uh, you know, what's the backstory to justify that evaluation of 1.5 million? At least with Honus Wagner, we know the story by this point. We know it's rare. Because, as you said and read off the Wikipedia entry, he didn't want his image to be used for whatever reason. Like, the exact reason I'm sure is lost to time, but still, there's a very finite, limited number of those cards. Yeah. There was at the time, and here we are 110 years later. There's even less. Yeah. Exactly. How many copies of Mario 64 were printed? Like, probably tens of millions. There you go. It, so. It was never stated at the time with that auction for the Mario 64 copy. Was it a misprint? Was it a typo? Was it a rare signed copy? Was it a test
1: run? But even still, I mean, all of those things, again, they're niche. Oh, they are niche. They're very niche. Like there's not, they're not like historically, like a baseball card, yes, baseball still is niche, but when it gets to a certain age, then it crosses over into like, oh, this is like actually like, Maybe at some point that card should maybe end up even in a museum, right? Like Certainly? Can like, be that's, argued. like that's <laughs> that's what we're talking here. Will you see a copy or this copy of Mario sixty four end up in a museum? No. Probably certainly. not. I'm guaranteed you won't. Like you'll see an N sixty four maybe if there's if they're getting that deep into like video games and they're doing like let's say the Smithsonian or something is doing like, you know, Oh, we're doing a video game ex- exhibit for the next month, like, you might see an N64, you're, you might see a copy of Mario 64, but they're not gonna care how, what condition it's in.
0: No, no, they, they don't need to worry about having the, you know, whatever highly graded, uh, copy of Mario 64 cartridge on display. You know, that's not going to matter whatsoever. So, uh, thing, I, I I thought that occurred to me too as you were talking there about the differences between the Honus Wagner card, its historical value and the copy of Mario 64 that sold for 1.5 million. I, I think one of the differences too is you can look at and understand what the Honus Wagner card is without anything else because there's nothing else to it. It's a very small piece of paper. Yeah. That is well sealed, well kept at this point to, the, the Mario 64,
1: it's a box that holds a cartridge. And again, yeah, anyways, th- there's, there's lots to it, too. Does it actually hold the cartridge? Maybe sure. Nintendo screwed up. Maybe Nintendo put the wrong cartridge in it. We'll never know. It's an unopened box of a thing. Like, baseball cards, at least what you see is what you get. Yes. Like, there's no yeah. mystery. Like... And like, that's the tricky thing with some of these collectibles that are unopened boxes. Like, you don't actually know. It's almost like, it's almost like Schrodinger's cat, right? Or something like that, where it's like, yeah, it contains the game, but it also might not contain the game. Who knows what's actually inside the box? It's not been opened. You pay me six figures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, if you open
0: it, then the value just goes right down. Yeah. But that's enough dwelling on the, uh, the, the, I guess, slightly more seedy uh, side of, uh, Uh, of the collector's market, there were some lighthearted stories to come out of the the collector's market, collectibles market, in the year of
1: 2021. We just want to touch on there, bring some levity to things. Yeah, bring it back up just so we're not just like, you know, showing disdain for like just two or three basically main threads that were really poking in and like being really uncomfortable for the whole year of like, you know, NFTs, heritage auctions, WADA, whatever, like just angrying up the blood. (laughs) So there were other things that you know, like you said, were more fun and more on the ridiculous side of things, which you know we look at and go, ah, it's not really for us, but it's still fun to look at that something this ridiculous made money. Like going r- right back to March, kind of starting off. I don't want well saying starting off this whole now the, the, this set of notes, th- this branch of items that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. now, which is like hopefully less crazy and less well. Crazy in an angering way, and not crazy in a fun way, cause this is, this was also kinda crazy. Uh, Wu-Tang Clan, bless them. Uh, <laughs> they were <laughs> known for doing ridiculous, extremely limited edition things. Uh, this past year they released a limited edition photography book, which was called Wu-Tang Legacy. Uh, which was a large format photography coffee table style book which uh, featured 300 pages of images and came encased in a 400-pound sculpted chamber. Uh Yeah. It um. was super large, and only 36 editions of this book were produced. You know, for the 36 chambers. Mm-hmm. Whole Wu-Tang joke. Uh, yeah, it never
0: gets old, by the way.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, largest hip-hop book in history. Good luck getting one. I mean, I put my name in just to, out of curiosity. Like, yeah, I'll put my email in that list. Sure. <laughs> I don't mind being on the Wu-Tang mailing list. I like the Wu-Tang Clan. Sure. Of course, I didn't get even a message saying this thing was for sale. Like there, that was going to be like limited to like a very elite group of people. I'm S- sure.
0: Certainly, uh, and each book was printed and uh, bound in leather in Italy and came encased in a bronze encrusted black steel chamber, individually designed by sculptor Gaithan Jones. Uh, the design apparently was inspired by bronze ritual bowls from the Zhao Dynasty, an ancient period considered the pinnacle of Chinese bronzeware crafting, and its first ruler was King Wu uh, King Wu
1: Wang. Yeah, not Wu Tang, but Wu Wang. Yeah. Close enough, right? <laughs> Am I right? Is that racist? I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, I'm seeing the inspiration. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so that's a, that's a biggie that uh, only 36 of them were put out, so you had to have some, some serious scratch in order to get in on that, but uh, perhaps you're a fan of, uh, other types of entertainment, perhaps you're big into manga. Certainly one of the big titles in the manga and anime world these days is Attack on Titan. Yep.
1: I believe it with its... Is this year when the final season comes? I think the... I don't actually remember. I kind of fell off after the first season, personally. I, I think
0: this year is the, when the final season comes. But nevertheless, in Japan, the publishing company Kodanshana uh, released just a huge compilation of the first and second installments of the Attack on Titan manga. So big, in fact... Uh, that it had 96 pages, jumbo sized, measured 3 feet high, and weighed in at 30
1: pounds. Yeah, so, <laughs> can you imagine reading a 3 foot tall book? <laughs> a third Trying to sit like in a chair or on the couch with a 30 pound book on your lap? Yeah, so, exactly. A hundred of those were available through the Kodansha website, uh, and each one was 150,000 yen which translates to roughly 1400 US dollars so yeah, tax not included i'm sure large import and shipping fees also <laughs> not included uh, yes the cost of
0: buying the donkey to carry it to your doorstep was uh, of course extra
1: yes exactly uh yeah so largest manga being sold i believe i believe so uh I'm sure that will be topped at some point. Too. Yeah, at, at some point I'm sure someone's gonna make a four foot tall one or six foot tall, who knows.
0: Hey, and then a, a manga tall enough just to, to destroy the world! Yes! Exactly. <laughs> Which then itself becomes the basis for a new set series of manga. Yeah, exactly. The killer manga from manga!
1: Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh. uh
0: but yeah. another interesting uh, item that came across, uh, it's... Listed for a really high price on eBay was uh, someone, uh, a game collector, a Dutch game collector named uh, da- uh, Donnie Fillerup, selling what they had as a golden Wii that apparently was uh, sent to the Queen and addressed to the Queen herself. <laughs> the Queen of England? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes.
1: Not, not the Queen of Atlantis, the Queen of or, England. Or the Queen of Holland? I don't know if that's a thing. I'm sorry. I don't know much about your country. Holland? Which, okay, good. I was gonna say, which country? Holland.
0: Are we generalizing it to Europe as a country? Well, no. Nah, the European country. That European country over there. (laughs) So, so the story behind this golden Wii is that it was produced by THQ, uh, you know, during the days of the Wii as a PR stunt to promote their game at the time, Big Family Games, which was one of the many, many Many mediocre minigame compilations that was available on the Wii uh, aimed at the family markets, you know, so you can have the kids and the parents all in the living room moving around, flailing their arms, and Dad
1: actu- accidentally whacks little Timmy in the face. And sends him flying, and then that game perhaps... Family game night, perhaps turns into a more quiet affair with board games around a table. Yes, after but, this experience. But only certain board games, because, you know, other board games... Caused too many fights? Uh, Yes. Uno, uh, no longer allowed to be played. Uh, Uh, Scrabble with custom words. (laughs) (laughs) Although that's an
0: entertaining recipe, let's be clear. Uh, Nevertheless, this Golden Wii, again, PR stunt produced by THQ, and they send it off as part of the PR stunt to the Queen herself, the Queen uh, of England herself, Queen Elizabeth II. However... Uh, she, this piece was rejected. It didn't really get past, uh, the mail sorting process was rejected, ultimately returned to THQ through the intervening years, found its way to game collector, Donnie Fillerup. And when asked about this by, I believe it was, uh, uh, a, a news outlet at the time when this story came out that he was putting it up for sale for $300,000 uh, or 216,000 British pounds, uh, he said ultimately the reason is he needs the money because he's looking at moving. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he wants to move on with his life from this and feels this was the quote unquote golden ticket to do so, so f- fair enough. Don't know if, don't know if he ever actually got the money he was looking for or if he ever actually sold it or just, uh, uh, was very much bothered by the, uh, low-balling of offers he got and just decided to hold on to it for the
1: time being. I mean, um, I've gotta, I've gotta got hand it to his, uh, you know, honesty at least. You it's know, true. Oh, I need money to move. Okay, well, fair enough. At least we know what it's
0: going for. Yeah. <laughs> I can respect that. So, uh, don't know if that actually sold, but this next ridiculous eBay transaction, did reach a conclusion that we don't know if actual monies changed hands, because on the evening of June 3rd, a nugget shaped like a character from the game Among Us sold at auction on eBay for $99,997. U.S. Yeah, so... <laughs> which... Yeah. It opened life <laughs> on May 28th for a price of 99 cents.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say about this, but it's, it's crazy. Uh, I think part of the appeal was that it also came from a BTS combo meal. True. Because for a while there, even garbage from McDonald's with the BTS logo on it was making its way onto eBay and selling for frankly too much money. Any amount of money for just a McDonald's bag. From someone's order with the BTS logo on it mm-hmm. is too much money. Uh,
0: trying to uh, take advantage of the BTS army and uh, their fandom and uh, the
1: mania, if not hysteria surrounding BTS. Yeah, I'd say hysteria is more correct. I mean, it's, I can imagine that that's what it would have been like to see the Beatles come to power in the 1960s uh, with similar to what we were seeing with BTS in the last couple of years. True enough. Which, yeah, I mean, all the power to them, but holy crap, like, people are insane. Like, when you get something, like, the bag that your McDonald's order comes in is literally just a thing you're supposed to throw away in, like, two seconds once you've got your order, right? hmm But if it has a BTS logo on it, oh, you can sell it for 60 bucks on eBay. It's like, really? <laughs> it's like, what did I throw? I didn't know that. I already threw a couple of those out. Damn. <laughs> Which I did, but yeah. Oh, you could have made a couple hundred bucks. I guess. Had so. you known. Had I known, but also it seems like a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. It's easier just to throw it away. Yeah, exactly. Let some let some poor BTS fan, you know, rummage through the landfill or wherever those bags end up in the you know I I, I put them in the recycling, but there's no guarantee it makes it to any sort of recycling depot. That's true. At sure. least where we're from. Anyways, um all that aside. So, so so yeah, so that was kind of the lighter side of the, the
0: collectibles market in twenty twenty one. Uh a lot of question marks, a lot of huh, a lot of
1: wa, a lot of really
0: really yeah.
1: So I anticipate, you know, if we're making like quick snap uh calls of what you know predictions of what we're gonna see. I don't see NFTs going away. If anything, I see it becoming an even more pervasive thing. It might even come to a head this upcoming year of like, what is the end goal of all this bananas nonsense, especially given the environmental impact of NFTs. And blockchain. And blockchain in general. So we, we're we not going to hear the end of it. What? Are the meme stocks going to be in 2022? Good question. Like that Wall Street bets targets. Are we going to continue to see crazy meteoric rise of Tesla? You'd think there's only so high it can
0: get, but when it's propelled just by, again, the the almost brute forcing of will by members of the Wall Street bets community, uh, along with, I guess, uh, the other entrenched uh, investment class of Wall Street day traders and whatnot, that it's, at this point... The the cash cow, it's the gift that keeps on giving because it's only known one direction, up. Yeah.
1: Straight up. So that remains to be seen. And then, yeah, are we going to see the collectibles thing come to a head as well? I don't know. In in theory, there's got to be just a
0: a maximum saturation point, if not a maximum amount, that is reached before these sorts of markets start to collapse under their own weight. Yeah, you'd
1: think so, right? Will we see something happen? Will Will Heritage and or WADA be exposed for being sort of like a questionable questionable out- outfit? Good question. Hopefully, more
0: investigation happens and uh, more more transparency uh, takes place around the collectibles market. We'll see. We'll see how all that unfolds through the course of twenty twenty two. But another story that's going to continue unfolding in twenty twenty two is the ongoing legal disputes between Epic Games and Apple. You would think that was all resolved in 2021. You may have heard that uh, there was a a judge's decision rendered in the fall, I think September. And yeah, I thought that was all settled, but no, perhaps you've noticed you're still paying for transactions in apps on your iOS devices through the Apple payment system.
1: Yeah. I mean, you as consumers, it doesn't really matter much to, but... You've probably only noticed if you're playing games and whatever else, and if you're making in-app purchases, the actual Apple App Store thing will come up where, you know, it'll ask for your password for your App Store just to confirm your payment and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be some in-game thing where they're asking your credit card. So that still hasn't changed. And, yeah, it. it who knows how long that's going to take to change because... Apple's dragging their feet now.
0: Yes, they are. They are uh, engaging in uh, the appeals process. Uh, I mean, granted, that's afforded to them as uh, uh, the plaintiff in this uh, legal kerfuffle. But uh, the initial rendering came down in in September after a few months, few weeks of trial that got underway in early May. Uh, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers rendered her ruling back on September 10th. The more it was a Friday morning, September 10th. And under the new order she issued at that time, back in September, quote, Apple was permanently restrained and enjoined from prohibiting developers from including in their apps and their metadata buttons, external links, or other calls to action that direct consumers to purchasing mechanisms, in addition to in-app purchasing and communicating with customers through points of contact obtained voluntarily from customers through account registration within the app. So... The long and short of that is that Apple could no longer prohibit other means of payment uh, from taking place that were not the Apple Pay system itself. Yeah. And also allowed for consumers to communicate that directly to people who had downloaded their app, uh, that they came into that person's information that was already volunteered. So uh, that uh, was set to basically all come into effect on December 9th. Uh, Apple initially, uh, uh, set about to appeal, uh, they appealed the judge's ruling back to the judge who rendered the ruling, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers, uh, she denied that request in November. Imagine that. Uh, and at that point, Things would still go ahead, but Apple then continued on in the appeals process, took it to a higher court, and the higher court issued a stay on those changes to the Apple App Store payment system, uh, basically the day before they were set to take hold, so by the skin of their teeth or whatnot. So it it doesn't necessarily reverse the ruling, uh, but it puts enforcement of that ruling on hold until the appeals court can hear the case in full. A process that will take months uh the ruling from the appeals court says quote apple has demonstrated at minimum that its appeal raises serious questions on the merits of the district court's determination therefore we grant apple's motion to stay part of the ruling of the permanent injunction uh the stay will remain in fact until the mandate issues in this appeal so yeah so there will be an appeals process that will happen at some point in 2022, uh, that will take several months, and then that ruling will come out, and
1: pretty much one way or the other, it's going to be appealed. Yeah. though. yeah. Uh, A little minor thing, though, is I guess also we didn't get to talk about it because, you know, we were on Christmas break. Elsewhere in the world, questions are being raised as well, you know, like South Korea and India. Yeah, some big markets. Some pretty big markets are now saying, hey, this actually does smell kind of of like anti-competition, so like Korea in particular is going to sign a law into place soon, it sounds, where they're going to maybe force Apple to allow Apple and Google to allow other in-app payment options in the interest of fair competition, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, South Korea, a
0: pretty big market. Yeah. It's not like it's, uh, you know, a country with only a hundred thousand people or anything like that. No, no, it's, it's has kinda... got Millions
1: and millions of people live there. Yes. And basically all of them connected with smart devices. Yes. And yeah, India is also investigating again, like a billion people there. So yeah, a cool billion. Yeah. Very tech savvy country as well, despite what you might think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Yeah, And
0: the thing about those last two items, about India and South Korea looking into and potentially enacting changes on the Apple App Store system, is uh, they're government-initiated projects. Yeah, They're not lawsuits that are going to be tied up in a legal system through months and months and months, if not years, years, years. The government is taking
1: it upon themselves
0: to look into these issues. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Fun times. And I guess, again, we will see... Throughout the entire year, this continued to unfold because this is a big story and it's not over. It's not even close to over. It's not close to over and once it is settled with Apple in
0: regards to uh, how they are allowed and permitted to conduct their App Store payment systems uh, on the iOS uh, uh, ecosystem, that has ramifications
1: for Google and ultimately ramifications for the, the console players as well. And ramifications for anyone anytime they want to run any sort of marketplace that provides apps of any kind. Yes. And yeah, so it's, it's very far reaching. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not going to be going anywhere anytime soon, but it's also, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to have huge impact on the world in the next coming years, really. Yes.
0: The, the Apple case and whatever, Judge judgment ruling are ultimately rendered, will be the precedent. Yeah. Uh, And that will be appealed, of course, but when that is all settled and all that dust is cleared, we're going to have a new era of how to deal with platforms and payment structures.
1: Yeah, how are things going to be bought and sold on the internet, essentially, when they are digital goods? Yep. That's how it's going to, like, that's the impact of this, which sounds far-reaching, and it is. And
0: another uh uh issue, not only is this far-reaching and going to continue spinning throughout 2022, another issue that is far-reaching that is going to continue throughout 2022 is the fact of supply chain challenges.
1: Yeah, I mean, with the ever-given, you know, which also seems like a million years ago, but also wasn't a million years ago because it was just back in, what, summertime of this past year? Uh, I think it was like February. Okay, it yeah. It was like the earlier part early, of uh, 2021. Yeah, so... Yeah, that remember that big ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal first, causing like some supply chain issues. That come like, combined with the fact that California is essentially on fire right now and has been for months. Uh, I mean, was and also the fact
0: that uh, off the, some of the ports uh, on the coast of California are like seventy sh- cargo ships, if not more. Yeah, and at perhaps that but I, I think
1: the, I think the fire caused the massive backlog, which is what I was reading about. Like. Whatever the case, there are problems with how you know the ports work. Yes, and goods being shipped. Yeah, and which is causing these massive problems. And like you, you might have noticed, lots of stuff is really expensive now. Wood has been one that's been kind of a crazy. Like, it, I know we're a video game podcast, <laughs> typically, and you might not be like, "What are you talking about the price of wood for?" But Wood has been crazy expensive. It's like tripled in price in the last like year. Mm-hmm. So, sure did. Like, so if you were looking to build a deck or a fence or something, 2021 was not the year to do it.
0: Uh, no, in theory it was not. Didn't stop people, you just paid, you know, ate the premium and went along with it, but still, yeah. had you done it in 2020, you would have been much better off.
1: Yeah, but yeah, uh, wood was one thing, there was lots of other things as well, but the the pertinent thing to our podcast is chip shortages. Like, there, because... A plenty. Like, tons of chip shortages. I mean, it caused supply issues across the board. Good luck getting a PlayStation 5, because Sony was not able to produce them fast enough because they had shortages of goods. Mm-hmm. Good luck getting an Xbox. Same, same, same deal. Same deal. Good luck getting any number of these smaller. And if, if you were ordering a more niche, smaller device, like one of the analog devices or a Playdate or anything like that, They all faced the same problems. They had to like kind of, a lot of them became engineering problems because it's like, well, we're not going to have access to this one chip for two years. Maybe we need to investigate other chips that are more plentiful.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what uh, the Playdate had to do. Yeah. Uh, Or Panic, uh, the makers of the Playdate, the the niche little handheld gaming device, that the chips uh, that they were going to use in their device were not available so they had to basically re- rework the device and they have their launch date pushed back to uh, 2022 yeah
1: they also faced battery issues and a couple of other things as well but yeah the analog pocket shipments were also pushed back they were supposed to initially come out in march towards the end of march 31st or sorry t- towards the end of may the news came out towards the end of march yeah they were supposed to you know be out by may it got, at that time, was pushed back to October. I think it might have been pushed back again as well.
0: Yeah, I think uh, in December is when they opened up the pre-orders, but it all really depended on basically when you got in for, for your pre-order, on like December 13th or 14th, uh, because then you were placed in one of a couple different groups. If you were lucky enough, you got into the first group, then you are currently expecting to get your analog pocket uh, in the first quarter of 2022, if you got into the next group, well, then you should get your device by the end of 2022. If you were not so lucky and missed out on those first two groupings, you're not expecting to see your device until 2023 at the earliest, which yeah. is a kick in the teeth. Because a lot of us really like that analog pocket and would like to get an analog pocket, but we can't get an analog pocket. Yeah, we can't because,
1: yeah, good luck. Yeah, at this point... I'm just waiting. Yeah, I mean, there's no point in making an order now to have it maybe be filled in two years. Yeah. Like, that doesn't make sense. I'll wait till you have regular production.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'll wait for that. But even then, the companies that have regular production, see, like Nintendo with the Switch... Like, production of the Switch was well underway before COVID, pandemic, and just supply chain issues hit. They themselves are experiencing supply chain issues, chip sor- shortages, other parts they had to say in one of their quarterly, uh, fiscal updates that they were cutting production of the Switch by 20% be, uh, from what uh, the initial projection was gonna be because they don't have the parts and they can't get the parts. Yeah. Uh, for what they need. So, uh, now, granted, I mean, the Switch already has a very solid install base, and the supply chain issues faced by PlayStation 5, the Xbox uh, Series X, and, and whatnot, really help, has helped keep din, uh, the Nintendo Switch selling like hotcakes. Yeah. For, for however much it can still sell, but uh, I'd imagine the dynamics would be very different if uh, uh, Sony and Microsoft had their consoles ramped up to regular production values.
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, everyone and their dog has been looking for PlayStation 5s, like that's sort of been like the long-running joke, where it's like, well, good luck getting one, right? So.
0: <laughs> you know when you'll get one? When the PlayStation 6 is ready to come out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's kind of really unfortunate if you think about just the timing of really world events over the last two years, that normally would have been, uh, because the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X came out in late 2020, uh, ramp up time would have been really early 2020. Yeah. To start really getting out and cranking out, you know, building an inventory of these systems to get out to retailers and whatnot. And that hasn't really happened. Hmm. Because pandemic hit, factories shut down and the, the manufacturing process took a hit there. Eventually, Things got back up to scale and, uh, but have still been running into challenges since. So the PS5 and Xbox Series X have not been, had their processes running tickety boo at all in their life cycle. No. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Just the timing is kind of like, mm, nope, done.
1: Yeah. Hell, we probably would have even been almost towards, you know, a redesign at this point.
0: Yes, probably. We'd yeah. be talking about redesigns or like mid-gen upgrades or, you know, whatever advances.
1: Yeah, but no. <laughs> Everyone who wants one still doesn't have one yet. So, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So the, the supply chain is going to
0: continue to be a problem into 2022 because everyone's kind of looking for the same parts at the same time. Yeah. This is what happens with massive global disruption of uh, the economy and supply chain and manufacturing processes and shipping procedures. Like yeah. having 50 to 70 giant con- cargo container ships off, I
1: think it was the coast of San Diego at one point. Yeah. Something's gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like part of that was because widespread fires shutting down things. Part of it is just frankly because of like, too much of a backlog was built up. Part of it's also, again, still, still, let's remember, COVID is still a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and like there's still shortages of people across the board in lots of different industries too. So, yeah, 2022 is going to be a, you know, probably, I, I don't want to pessimistically say more of the same, but probably more of the same for well, a
0: while. For For a while. I feel like 2021 was... An attempt at a transition year to go from the, the absolute hellfire landscape that was 2020 to yeah. transi- transition back into a slight bit closer towards life as normal, quote unquote, as we remember it. But it's, I think how it amounted was to, uh, similar to what happens when you drop a plate on the floor and you try to put it all back together. Yeah. You can get a lot of pieces all in the same place, but it doesn't quite all go back together the same way. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's... We'll see if 2022 is more of the mending process. Hope it is, but those were the the big stories we saw in the course of 2021. Let us know your thoughts. Did we miss any other big story that you thought we should have talked about over the past two hours? Uh, you can email us, info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up. We are still on social media. Like us, follow us, love us. Uh, all those good things. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are on Facebook at The Arcade Show on both of those evil platforms. And if you haven't done so already, give yourself the gift that keeps on giving all through the course of the year with a subscription to The Arcade. It's free. It's on iTunes. It's on Google Podcasts and direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So until next time, good night everybody! Good night!